0: Despite some impressive progress in prevention and treatment of HIV infection and AIDS, there are limits to what can realistically be done to control the epidemic with those tools alone. An effective HIV vaccine would make the end of the epidemic much more likely. But such a vaccine has proved elusive. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Fauci has co-authored a perspective article on the need for an HIV vaccine, and the scientific advances that will help us find one. Dr. Fauci, as you note in your article, there are effective preventive tools available, but in many countries, cultural and legal factors impede efforts at prevention. How much progress has been made in addressing these factors, particularly in the countries where U.S. donors, such as the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, have been engaged?
1: Well, considerable progress has been made, and it has been actually validated by the statistics of looking at the decrease in the number of new infections over a measured period of time with the acceleration or prevention modalities. But whenever you're dealing, and we've seen this in situations with HIV itself as well as in other diseases, whenever you're dealing with something that relies or relates to human behavior to in order to prevent an infection, You're really requiring people on a continual basis make positive health choices. And the social context that they're in, the traditions and the social situation in the country, some legal impediments, for example, to accessing gay men in some countries, several countries, homosexuality is illegal, sometimes condoms are used as evidence to prosecute commercial sex workers. So when you're talking about trying to do things like distribute condoms among risk populations, we know that circumcision works, yet the implementation of circumcision programs is only a fraction of what we need to do to reach our goals. So really what I'm saying is that these interventions clearly work when implemented consistently, but we do know from just experience with human nature that there is a risk that there will, once we start to continue to make good progress, that there'll be a slip. There may be recidivism, for example, people who are doing well for a period of time and then just almost get fatigue and stop. When you have something that's a permanent prevention modality, like a vaccine, that really helps a long way in combination with non-vaccine prevention modalities to put what I refer to as a durable end to the AIDS pandemic, where not only do you decrease the incidence of new infections, not only do you decrease the deaths, but those numbers stay low permanently as opposed to going down and then rebounding back like we've seen with other diseases.
0: We recently published two prospective articles on PEPFAR's gradual withdrawal from South Africa, which is being seen as a sort of pilot program that will herald an eventual withdrawal from other African countries as well. So, given what you say about the problems of recidivism resources, do you think that there'll be adequate funding and infrastructure for HIV prevention after PEPFAR leaves?
1: Well, I think so. I hope so. Let me explain to you why I do think so. Because PEPFAR is not going to withdraw support from a country that is not adequately equipped to maintain and sustain the progress that has already been made. The general plan And the strategy that PEPFAR has developed is to try as best as they can, and they've been quite successful, to develop some sustainable infrastructure of implementation of their programs in any given country. Now, there's a great deal of variability in the resources of certain countries. For example, comparing South Africa with the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is much poorer and much less able to sustain their own programs, whereas South Africa really does have considerable resources. So what PEPFAR plans to do is, where appropriate, pull back on the intensity of resources in those countries that have the capability of maintaining that sustainable infrastructure and implementing prevention and treatment programs within that infrastructure and shift resources to go to countries that are not as well-equipped. So the ultimate plan is not to just pull out willy-nilly, because you don't want to essentially negate the extraordinary progress that has been made through PEPFAR, but to do it in a selective way and in a circumspect way. And in that way, you can actually get more bang for the buck, because you can withdraw a bit from countries that can do it themselves without that intensity of resources, and then you will be applying resources to those countries that are not doing as well and maybe enhance their capabilities and ultimately get them to develop a sustainable infrastructure. So I think it's a good plan, and I'm not concerned because I believe PEPFAR really knows what they're doing. They've done such a terrific job up to now that we are going to have an even better approach as they make these well thought out and selective shifts in resources.
0: And looking at the United States, you note in your article that only a quarter of HIV infected people in this country have received adequate antiretroviral treatment to achieve an undetectable viral load. So, what are the obstacles to obtaining HIV care in this country?
1: Well, there are several, and it really relates to each step in the care continuum. The care continuum that we describe, if you take In the United States, there are about 1.1 million people who are right now infected with HIV, yet 16 to 18 percent of them do not know that they are infected. And more than half of the new infections come from someone who does not know that he or she is infected and transmits it to their partner, their sexual partner. So right away, getting access to these individuals getting them tested to begin with in a voluntary way, and then getting them into care, and then when in care to stay in care, and when needing therapy to be put on therapy and to maintain therapy. This has everything to do with understanding what the disincentives are for people to actually get into that care continuum. And it even goes beyond a disincentive. It may be just the very nature of the healthcare delivery programs that we have a nature of not understanding how one accesses particularly in minority communities because we know there's an extraordinary disparity in this country where only 12 percent of the population are african-american and more than 50 percent of the new infections are among african-americans so there are a lot of things to do the nih niaid has a study which is trying to examine and find out what the best and most appropriate ways are to seek out, test, link to care, keep in care, and treat individuals. And there are pilot programs now that are coming to fruition in Washington, D.C., where I live, and in the South Bronx, among other cities. So we know what the gaps are. We really just need to figure out the most appropriate way to fill those gaps.
0: You underscore the importance of an HIV vaccine, but in your article you describe a number of failed approaches to vaccine development. What lessons have we learned from those failures?
1: Well, the lessons we've learned is that we really did not fully understand something that is really now the prevailing stumbling block, and that is the body does not make an adequate or an appropriate immune response against HIV. And the initial attempts, the failures that I refer to in my article in the New England Journal, was that we were doing what you would... Naturally, expect stimulate, give someone an immunogen that's an envelope and expect to get an antibody response that would be protective. We now know that when you look at natural infection, I mean, the whole philosophy behind vaccinology as a field is to mimic natural infection because you take the worst of the diseases, smallpox, measles, polio, even though they cause morbidity and mortality, at the end of the day, the body ultimately makes an appropriate and adequate immune response that not only clears the infection, eradicates it, but provides for the infected person immunity, which is essentially lifelong against that virus or that microbe. We don't see that with HIV. So the body just does not do that and is incapable of doing that. So we tried the standard approaches. Envelope, antibody-based vaccine without stimulating the right response. T-cell vaccines without getting the right response and now we're starting to see mostly based on studying individuals who are HIV infected and find out that despite the fact that virtually nobody completely recovers a relatively small percentage of people about 20 percent do make broadly neutralizing antibodies that you predict would be protective against a wide range of HIV isolates. One of the really fascinating things that it doesn't happen immediately after infection or very soon after infection, the way we see in most other viruses. It takes anywhere from two or more years for these 20% of the people to develop measurable neutralizing antibodies. So what we've got to do is figure out how we do better than nature, because the old paradigm was what you want to do with a vaccine is mimic natural infection. What we say now with HIV is what we need to do is we need to do much better than natural infection in inducing a response so that it's in 80, 90 percent of the people and it doesn't take two to three years for that response to occur. We've got to do it within the framework of a feasible vaccine. So these are the things that we're learning. We certainly are not there yet, but what our understanding is of even what the obstacles are is infinitely greater than what it was five, ten years ago.
0: In your article, you outline a pathway to the iterative design of sequential immunogens that mimic the mutational evolution of the virus. Can you walk us through that pathway?
1: Sure. What happens is that by the observing and there have been some classic papers now that have come out where we've investigators have had the opportunity to actually get into a study someone who was very recently infected, just by the nature of how that person was followed. So someone is infected within a period of literally a few days or a week, and you follow that person and you follow the virus as it evolves and you follow the antibody response as it evolves. And what naturally happens is that you make an immune response, an antibody response against the virus, and the virus, by natural selection, will mutate to evade that response. So then the immune system comes back with another form of that antibody, and then the virus then mutates again. So what you see over a course of a couple of years, and this has been documented in real patients, that as the virus evolves, the antibody, the B-cell repertoire, evolves to try and essentially block that virus, but it's always one step behind the virus. But what happens is that at the end of multiple iterations of the virus mutating and the immune response evolving to keep up with it, at the end of a period of time, what's left is a broadly neutralizing antibody that in vitro or in the test tube can neutralize a broad range of primary isolates. The only problem is by the time it occurs in that person, that person is not going to benefit because that person has a virus that it does not get neutralized by that, or else that there's so much infection, such a large reservoir, that it isn't particularly helpful. So using that as the model, what investigators are now modeling into their plans are, why not mimic that iterative response? Why not have a sequence of envelope immunogens that engage the early B-cell repertoire, get to the point where it reaches a certain degree of efficacy and then boost it with a evolved immunogen, essentially mimicking the mutational evolution of the virus. You mimic that by an iterative immunization with sequential immunogens that essentially mimic the evolution of the virus. Because we know as the virus evolved, as I just mentioned a moment ago, Ultimately, the end game was that you did wind up with a broadly neutralizing antibody, but it was too late for the patient. So when an uninfected individual, if you can engage in a sequential way the B-cell repertoire to ultimately induce this neutralizing antibody within a reasonable time frame, you cannot wait two to three years to do it, but within a reasonable time frame, you may be able to induce in an individual those broadly neutralizing antibodies, that natural infection did but took a very long time to do. So that's what we mean by an iterative vaccine design whereby sequential evolution of immunogens, you prod the immune response to ultimately make a neutralizing antibody.
0: In addition to that B-cell approach, you also described T-cell approaches that could enhance B-cell responses. So are we looking at a need for multiple vaccines or a combination vaccine?
1: A combination vaccine, I think of, again, just from a theoretical standpoint, since we certainly are not there yet, it would be the B-cell iterative design that I just described to you together with inducing a T-cell response that actually could have the capability, because T-cells have multiple functions for B-cells. So let me very quickly go through them. First of all, they provide general help to B-cells. Also, T follicular helper cells have now been shown to be correlated with the ability of that B cell to mutate to the point of developing a neutralizing antibody. So, you want to induce the right kind of T follicular helper cells. And then there's the cytolytic CD8 positive T cells. And recent studies in a non human primate model indicate for the first time that using the right vaccine vectors to induce the immune response, very potent CD8 responses have been induced that in an animal model actually can clear the reservoir of infection after an animal gets infected. So these vaccines don't protect against initial infection, but they ultimately suppress completely. And and it looks like they even eliminate the residual cells that are infected with, in this case, the animal version, SIV or SHIV, if we can do that in humans, if we could combine an initial protection by a neutralizing antibody together with enough of a T cell response to essentially wipe out or get rid of any kind of residual cells that initially did get infected, that would be a very potent vaccine. So it certainly is important to have a very good neutralizing antibody response, but we do see a place for T cells. So really, in answer to your question, I think the ideal vaccine will be one that induces broadly neutralizing antibodies at the same time that induces a powerful enough T cell response to eliminate any cells that happen to have escaped the vaccine and infected the CD4-positive T cells, to essentially wipe them out or sweep them away since they've escaped the initial protection of the vaccine.
0: As you say, we're not there yet. So final question, how long's the road from here to an effective vaccine?
1: I cannot give you a number at all. In fact, (laughs) this is a story that's been going on for so many years, right from the very first day that HIV was identified, and people ask, well, how long to a vaccine? People have stumbled all over themselves trying to predict that. You can't predict. When you're in the realm of discovery, You can't predict when something is actually going to be an effective product. If you've proven a concept that this actually works, then I could play a guessing game or a prognosticating game and say, well, we know this will work. It'll take three, four, five years to get the vaccine. But we haven't even yet proven the concept that it will work. Although everyone wants to know a number, it's impossible for me to give you an intelligent guess about when that will be. I can tell you what it won't be. It's certainly not going to be next year or the year after. Is it going to be 10 years? Maybe less, I hope less, more possibly. But we're at that stage until we have a really good proof of concept. It's very dangerous to try and put a time frame on it.
0: Thank you, Dr. Fauci.